Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. accuracy of this tale, but I'm told that there is a fence that exists between heaven and hell. It's a very tall, very thick fence, and from time to time as the generations and the eons go by, that fence falls into disrepair. And there's an agreement between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell that they will alternate responsibility for mending that fence and fixing it. And one time it was Satan's turn to fix the fence, and St. Peter was telling him this, uh, please let the devil know that it's his turn to fix the fence. The devil said, I'm really not inclined to fix the fence, I don't really want to. And St. Peter said, well, you need to understand we have an agreement, and it is your responsibility, your turn, to mend the fence. And Satan said, well, I am the author of lies, of course, and so I don't really feel inclined to go ahead and hold up my end of the bargain. And Peter said, well, if you don't, I'm, afor- I- I'm afraid we're going to be forced to pursue legal action against you. And Satan just burst into hysterical laughter and said, legal action? Where are you going to find a lawyer? Um, I grew up... I grew up with two attorneys in my household, and I love that joke, all right? I really do. But growing up with two, uh, two attorneys in my house, I, uh, I guess maybe it's my pedigree to be a bit of a skeptic. I don't buy into things very easily. It's not easy to get me to go along with something. Now, that can be a good thing. I don't lose a lot of money because I don't buy into these wild ventures that, you know, the get-rich-quick schemes that people have, but it also can be a bad thing. The Bible talks about having childlike faith, and I have to be honest, if there's one thing I struggle with, it's childlike faith. When I hear a story about a man being swallowed by a great fish, when I hear a story about the Red Sea parting and people walking across on dry ground, and when I hear a story about a man resurrecting from the dead, 
it isn't easy to buy into that. For the last two, well, last two sessions, last week, we talked about where does the evidence point with regard to uh, the, the creation of the universe? Was there a designer or was there this random natural mutation and processes? And we saw that the evidence points towards design. Last Sunday night, we asked the question, is there a moral authority in the universe, a right and a wrong? Where does the evidence point? And we saw that the evidence points towards the notion that there is an absolute right and wrong, a natural law that we all understand, whether or not we want to admit it or not. But what we haven't established is who that designer and who that moral authority is. Today, we do just that. We talk about this third pillar of the Christian faith, why Christians believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. Why Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Savior. Now, if you talk to any attorney, if you talk to anybody, a judge, or anybody involved in the legal profession, and you ask them what type of testimony is the most powerful testimony you can have in a court of law, they will tell you one thing, and it's not corroborating testimony, it's not character witnesses, it is eyewitness testimony. If you can get somebody who was watching the event take place and say, I saw Mark Cameron beat the jack out of his wife, Lorraine, which would never happen. Lorraine would take him in a heartbeat. There's no question about that. But if somebody can say, I witnessed that happen, that is powerful testimony in a court of law. Eyewitness testimony is as good as you can have. So the question is, was there eyewitness testimony for these things that Jesus did? These things that Jesus said? Well, certainly there was. In fact, the four Gospels in the, at the start off of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two of those are direct eyewitness accounts. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus, the tax collector named Levi. John was the disciple Jesus loved. And there is, there is no competing a question of authorship for these two Gospels. Nobody questions, even secular historians, that these are the two men who wrote these accounts. Then you have Mark and Luke. Mark, John Mark, is actually, a lot of scholars say, writing the gospel of Peter. In other words, Peter is dictating to Mark, and Mark's writing what Peter saw. Luke is this, uh, well, you could call him a nerd. He was a physician. He was a doctor, but he was also an historian. And he says at the very start of his book, a lot of things have been said about this Jesus of Nazareth, but I have taken it upon myself to go and comb through all of the evidence, and I'm writing you a history of exactly what happened. Luke was an historian. So when you are looking at the Gospels, you're looking at two direct eyewitnesses and two indirect eyewitnesses. You know, sometimes the atheist says, well, the church just made this stuff up. Can I point out to you that these would have never been the four people that the early church would have picked if they were going to make up the Gospel? You're going to pick a tax collector that is hated by the Jews to write a Gospel message? You're going to pick uh, two guys who weren't themselves eyewitnesses, Mark and Luke? Not a chance. It would have been the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of, of James and the Gospel of John and I don't throw in Bartholomew or something like that. Right? Those would have been the people the early church picked. Now, here's something else that to an historian is absolutely astounding. The maximum gap of years that we can have between the events that took place and the authorship of those gospels is 30 years. That is simply amazing. Now, even if you want to be wild and crazy and accept the most liberal dates, the, the most liberal secular historians that don't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, they will try to say, well, these things aren't reliable because they were written 60 years. Now, we could go through, and in fact, if you get the booklet or the DVD, I actually do go through, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to today, and disprove why that is not even possible. It couldn't have been 60 years. But even if you want to accept it, remember last week when we were talking about creation and evolution, we just gave them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, Okay, they used the right conditions. I'm going to do that here. Let's just say it was 60 years between authorship. 
that is still within the lifetime of hostile witnesses. People who saw Jesus' life, who could have corrected the record and said, this isn't at all what happened. And yet nobody said any of those things. And that's just the Gospels. Get this crazy fact. The Gospels, even though they appear first in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John appear first, they weren't written first. All of the letters of Paul were written before the Gospels, which means if the maximum gap for the Gospels is 30 years, Paul was written before that. And look at what Paul said in some of his writings. In 1 Corinthians, look at what Paul writes. Again, 1 Corinthians written before the Gospels. For what I received, stop right there. You're reading ahead, stop it, stop it. For what I, we went through this last week and I haven't changed, all right? For what I received, what does that tell you? That tells you Paul has received something, some sort of creed, some sort of uh, profession of the faith. Even before Paul was writing this, he had received something from the early church. What did he receive? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Do the math, my friends. Jesus died in the year 30, A.D. 30. Paul's conversion then would have been around the year A.D. 32. Paul meets with the apostles around the year A.D. 35. And somewhere in that time frame, he has been given this creed that has already been formulated. It's already been spread throughout the Christian church. What does that tell us? Folks, we have facts, the, the, the uh, stated facts of Jesus' death for our sins, his burial, and his resurrection. Stated facts all dating within two to five years of the events themselves. This isn't some later history that somebody made up and wrote down. This is stuff that comes two to five years within the time frame of the events themselves. Now, the next, the next logical question that the atheist is going to have is, well, are they reliable? We can't know that the book that you're reading is actually what was written originally. It could have been changed and morphed through time. This is a common one. I want you to know that when I was in uh, graduate school, I read some of the works of Arian and Plutarch. These are the guys, uh, and and again, you probably have these on your bookshelves and you're into them. I know my wife, Jenny. I always have to rip away my volumes of Arian and Plutarch because she's always wanting to read them. But anyway, that's sarcasm. I'm laying it on pretty thick, all right? But anyway, Arian and Plutarch, they wrote the histories of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, this great uh, Greek um, conqueror and all of this, they wrote his histories 400 years after the events took place. And there is not an historian that questions the authenticity or the legitimacy of their claims. 400 years later, given ancient text standards, there is no question about the reliability of the Gospels. Well, some people say, well, they were passed on. It was oral history for the longest time. That's just a giant game of telephone. We've all played telephone, right? I come down to the front row and I whisper something in their ear and nobody else can hear. And we pass it all the way through the room and it gets to the end back there. And, and Parley stands up and says, well, this is what he said. And it isn't anywhere close to what I said. That's the game of telephone, right? I will grant you it's a game of telephone if you will grant me that this is a whole different set of rules. How they did it in the ancient world, first of all, these people weren't allowed to teach uh, the, the gospel message. They weren't allowed to teach scripture unless they had, uh, these Jewish scholars, the entire Old Testament committed to memory. That is how serious they were about making sure they got it right. Historians will tell you that oral history is one of the most trustworthy forms of passing along information. Another reason... This is how the game of telephone would have worked. I would have stood up in front of all of you and said, two plus two equals five. And I would have repeated it over and over and over again. Two plus two equals five. Do you get it? Two plus two equals five. Then I would have died or left the room and somebody new would have come in and, and, and one of you would stand up and say, you know what he just said? He said two plus two equals four. What would have happened the moment they said that? 
all of you would have corrected them. Why? Because you heard what I taught. It was a way of preserving the integrity of the message. Everybody heard what was being said, and therefore they would make corrections if somebody was mistreating the message. That's the way oral history worked, and it was extraordinarily reliable. Well, but Peter, the atheist, says uh, they, they omitted things. They omitted things that weren't uh, helpful to their cause. They ignored some of the bad stuff. You know what I say to an atheist who says this to me? Have you ever read the Gospels? Honestly, have you ever read the Gospels? Look at the Gospels. Peter is portrayed by Mark, the guy who is writing his Gospel, as a hothead. Somebody who is uh, seeing but not understanding. Somebody who is, he, he reacts before he thinks. Peter is not portrayed very well. James and John, these two great disciples, they're portrayed as egotists. They want to sit on Jesus' right and left hand through all eternity. Uh, the, the disciples are looked at as cowards. Jesus is arrested, and what do they do? They run off into the hills, for crying out loud. When Jesus is crucified, who comes to give him a proper burial? Not one of the disciples. You get a member of the Sanhedrin that comes rolling in to give him a burial. The disciples are not portrayed very nicely in the Gospels. And if they didn't omit things that would have been very easy for them to omit, there is no logistical reason to believe that they're just making things up as they go along. And also this. The atheist says, well, surely there were people that objected to what, the, what the, the Gospels were saying. They didn't believe what the Gospels were saying. You know what? This is huge. You've got to pay attention. Make sure you're focusing. Focus here. Good. All right? There were hostile witnesses. There were people that stepped up and said, Jesus wasn't the Son of God who lived at Jesus' time. But the atheist better be really careful about pointing that out because you know what they say? You know what those ancient Jewish scholars say when they're trying to dispute whether or not Jesus was the Messiah? They say, yeah, Jesus did all these miracles, but he did it by the power of the devil. Jesus was a black magician. He was engaged in the black arts, and he wasn't relying on the, on the authority of God. In other words, what do they do? They implicitly acknowledge that all of the claims of the Gospels, of Jesus' miraculous signs, are true. They're just saying he did it by a different power. Even the hostile witnesses recognize the authority of the Gospels are absolutely accurate in terms of whether or not those events took place. But what about authenticity? Two huge factors if you're going to prove the documents are, are, are authentic. And again, if you're an historian, you recognize these. Number one, the age of the surviving copy. What's, how old is the copy? If an event took place in 4000 B.C. and you have a copy of the event and it was written in 2000 B.C., that's pretty good. If you've got the earliest copy from 1979, not so reliable, all right? So how old is the oldest copy that you've got? And the other one is, how many consistent copies do you have? If you've got one copy from 2000 B.C., that's all right. But if you've got 10 copies, all saying the same thing from, 10, from 2000 B.C., that is amazingly profound, accurate history. So what about the New Testament? How does the New Testament stack up? I want you to listen to me. The New Testament stacks up better than any book in recorded history. Better than any book in recorded history. We have numerous copies that date within two generations of the events themselves. That's like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's grandkids. That's how early of some of these copies we actually have. Now, I want you to compare that to a lot of the ancient manuscripts that we believe are completely reliable. They come eight to ten centuries 10 centuries, that's a thousand years after the events took place, and yet we call it reliable history. Two generations. It's amazing. How about the number? We have more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts. 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Compare that to Tacitus, who wrote the Annals of Roman History that we believe is just this great uh, historical record of Rome. We have one manuscript of it. One, but we, we trust it. What about Josephus, the great Jewish, Jewish historian that wrote the Jewish War? We have nine copies of that. And they date 
to 10 centuries later, a thousand years, we call it reliable history. 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. So much so, that's exactly why this Dr. Bruce Metzger of Princeton said this. The quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison with other works of antiquity. Next to the New Testament, the greatest amount of manuscript testimony is Homer's Iliad, which was the Bible of the ancient Greeks. There are fewer than 650 Greek manuscripts of it today. Compare that to 5,000. And some of them are quite fragmentary. They come down to us from the 2nd and 3rd century A.D. and following. When you consider Homer put this, this epic together, comprise this, compose this epic, 800 B.C., go from 800 B.C. forward 800 years, and then another two or 300 years, you're talking over 1,000 years. The, the New Testament, my friends, it's embarrassing how much more reliable it is than anything else. Again, if you want more information on this and the dates and all of that, I'm not going to go into it this morning, but grab a DVD, this is my sales pitch, or a booklet, and, and it's all right in there. But this is the question I want to ask this morning. If we can prove that the Gospels are reliable history, which we can, then who was this guy? Who was this Jesus of Nazareth? What was he all about? Was he really who he said he was? Well, some people say he was a madman. You know, there have been a lot of people, and you've seen them in your lifetime, that have come along and claimed to be prophets of God. They've claimed to be divine. They lead these cults somewhere, and they claim that they have this message from God. Uh, In fact, I just saw on the news not long ago that we have another Savior that's hit in Jacksonville, Florida. So if you're interested, you might want to go down and hear what he has to say. But anyway, so there's people that come along, along all the time, and they claim to be divine. Yet, do you realize that when you're dealing with these people they usually suffer from some serious mental or emotional problem. So much so that if you look into psychology, which I studied in college, psychologists have actually set aside a certain certain amount of characteristics that they say, this is what you can expect from somebody who makes these claims. There There are certain characteristics that fit with someone who is a little off and thinks that they're divine. I want you to look at these characteristics. Come straight out of the psychology textbooks of what kind of characteristics a person like this has and ask yourself one question. Do these characteristics fit with the character of Jesus Christ, what we know in history about Jesus? Well, inappropriate depression, anger, inability to maintain relationships, inability to communicate, irrational leaps of logic, dressing oddly, unsuitable behavior, crippling fear and delusion, uninitiated violence, ostracism. Do any of those fit with what we know of Jesus Christ in the record of history? Not one of them fits. Not one of them at all. I want you to imagine that I made the claim this morning that I'm the President of the United States. I just started saying I'm the President of the United States. You'd think that I just snapped. I was gone. I was off. Why? Well, pretty simple. Why would this be a crazy claim? Well, no one listens to me or respects my authority, for one, as much as I hate it. No one respects my authority whatsoever. If I call the U.S. military into action, I doubt that they're probably going to go anywhere. You know what else? I don't live in the White House. That's kind of hurting me that I live on 2004 Waverly Drive in Kokomo, Indiana, if I'm claiming to be the president of the United States. I don't have little secret servicemen following me around, although if I ever have enough money, I will pay someone to walk around with a little thing in their ear just to trail me because that would be the coolest thing ever, all right? But anyway, I don't have any of the, in other words, what, what am I lacking? I'm lacking any evidence to demonstrate that I am who I say I am. I can claim to be the president, but if there is no evidence that supports that, no one's going to believe me. So I want you to be crazy. Again, we're being skeptics. We're being skeptics here. Jesus claims to be the son of God. I don't want you to say whether or not you believe Jesus was the son of God or not. I simply want you to ask yourself this question. If God had a son, and if God's son did come to earth, what would we expect him to do? What are some of the things we would expect the Son of God to do while on earth? Might we expect him to resurrect from the dead? 
to love indiscriminately, to teach prophetically unlike anything anybody had ever heard before, to forgive people, the most miserable among us, unapologetically forgive them, and perform these remarkable healings and wonders. Uh, To me, that's exactly what I would expect the Son of God to do. And in the record of history, that's exactly what Jesus of Nazareth did. There is evidence in the historical record. I want you to remember what Jesus said when he performed these healings. He said, I'm doing this so that you will believe. If I came down here and claimed to be the Son of God, you'd all think that I was a loon. But just so you know that I can do this, I'm going to walk on water. Just so you know that I have this authority and I really am who I say I am, I'm going to open the eyes of the blind man. I'm going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And I'm doing that not to be a freak show, not to be somebody, a magician that everybody wants to come and see perform these wild acts. I'm doing this so that you will believe that I am who I say I am. That's exactly why Jesus performed these miraculous signs. Now, atheists like Charles Templeton find ways to explain this away. They write things like this. Templeton writes in his book, many illnesses then as now were psychosomatic, meaning it's all mental. And they could be cured when the sufferer's perception changed. Just as today a placebo prescribed by a physician in whom the patient has faith can affect an apparent cure, so in an early time, faith in the healer could banish adverse symptoms. With each success, the healer's reputation would grow and his powers would, as a consequence, become more efficient. In other words, uh, these people weren't really sick. And Jesus, because he had this aura around him, he said, you are now well. And because Jesus had the aura, they thought, oh, I must be well. And all of a sudden, they they become well because it's all psychosomatic. Now, I'm going to acknowledge to you that if somebody had a mentally induced illness, Jesus could have very easily healed by suggestion. If somebody came and said, I have a broken leg, and they're walking up to him to say that, he might say, okay, you're healed. And the, oh, I'm healed. All right, so I'm not debating the fact that Jesus could heal by suggestion if he wanted to heal by suggestion but you tell me something. How in the world does this placebo effect explain the vast majority of Jesus' miracles? Uh, Psychosomatic healings take a great deal of time, and Jesus' healings happened like that, instantaneously. Jesus healed lifelong illnesses, blindness, uh, leprosy. These are not psychosomatic illnesses. A person isn't just imagining that they have all these boils all over their skin and they've been ostracized by everybody else. That's not psychosomatic. A person's not psychosomatic to not be able to see anything, and that's what Jesus is healing. Jesus brought people back from the dead. And I'm sorry, but it's not a psychosomatic illness. This person's stinking dead, all right? This is not psychosomatic. They're not alive. They have no pulse. Jesus performed creation miracles or nature miracles, if you want to call them that. Walking on water and and turning the water into wine and calming the sea with his outstretched hand and spoken word. That's not a psychosomatic illness. The sea isn't suffering from some sort of psychosomatic illness. It doesn't make any sense. So they have to find another way to explain it. And you have things like this. Well, Jesus was a master hypnotist. British author Ian Wilson has suggested this. And he has a lot of people that buy into his theory. That Jesus was a master hypnotist. And he put everybody that was around him into this trance. And they, they believed that he had something supernatural about him. And he writes this. Jesus failed precisely as a hypnotist where we would expect him to fail. Among those who knew him best. You see, when you're a hypnotist, it doesn't work very well on skeptics. If a person is a skeptic, you're not going to be able to sell them very easily on your hypnosis. And so what Wilson is writing is, those who saw him grow up as an ordinary child. You see, largely responsible for any hypnotist success rate are the awe and mystery with which he surrounds himself. And the essential factors would have been entirely lacking in Jesus' hometown. You know what? There is some evidence for this. If you read the Gospels, uh, Jesus doesn't perform a lot of miracles in Nazareth. He says, only in a hometown is a prophet without honor. These people are saying, isn't this, you're reading ahead, isn't this uh, the son of Mary and Joseph? 
The carpenter's son, there's nothing special about him. We saw him grow up. We saw him as the punk little kid running around. There's no way that this is the son of God. So Jesus didn't perform miracles because they lacked faith. And so Wilson says, this is a prime example. He's a hypnotist and these people won't buy into it. I don't know if you've ever seen a hypnotist do their thing, but they will look out into the crowd and they'll be watching for somebody who's reacting well to the sound of their voice. If they're really good at what they're doing, they will pick up on somebody who's responding well. They'll bring them up on stage and use them as their example. That's how a hypnotist does it because not everybody is as susceptible to to hypnosis as other people. So let me ask some questions then. The wedding in Cana, where Jesus first performs his miracle of changing water into wine, Jesus never addressed the crowd. How did the crowd get the message that this was wine? He never talked to them. How did he hypnotize them? What about the, the servants? He never told the servants that he turned it into wine. He never even spoke to the master. He said, just go take this to the master. There's not hypnosis taking place there. What about this? When Jesus feeds the 5,000, and folks, that's just men. If you add in women and children, you're probably talking 10,000 plus. Did Jesus hypnotize all of them into believing that all of a sudden their stomachs were full? Uh, I mean, that, that essentially is what the argument Wilson is making. Remember, Wilson points out hypnosis doesn't work on skeptics. So you tell me, Jesus' brother James, who was embarrassed of Jesus, as I would be if my brother claimed to be the Messiah. I, I can't imagine if somebody in my family were to claim something like that. It would be humiliating. And that's exactly what James thought. He first doubted Jesus, but then after he saw the resurrected Christ, he believed. How did Jesus hypnotize him? He was a skeptic. And Saul of Tarsus never even met Jesus before he became a follower of Christ. And what about Thomas? So skeptical he had to put his hand in Jesus' wounds before he'd believe it was really Jesus. How did Jesus hypnotize these people if they were skeptics? And also, how does hypnosis explain the empty tomb? Oh, the atheist says it's easy. Jesus hypnotized his disciples before he died so that then three days after, something in them snapped and all of a sudden they started wandering around the hill saying, Jesus is alive. He is alive. I saw him. Well, that's great. But don't you suppose if that's all that happened, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and the Roman authorities would have walked right up to the empty tomb and rolled the stone back and said, uh, Jesus is alive, huh? What, that's looking like his body right there. You see, hypnosis does not explain the empty tomb unless Jesus hypnotized pretty much everybody in the world. I suppose that's the only other option. But how you do that when you don't meet everybody, I don't know. Finally, it comes down to this, the fingerprint evidence. Again, go back to talking to a lawyer or anybody. If you can find the fingerprint of somebody at the crime scene, you know they were there. Why? Because you're the only one that has your fingerprint. It's like DNA evidence. You're the only one that has that evidence, that has that fingerprint. So here's the question. Is there fingerprint evidence for the gospel message? Is there fingerprint evidence for Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Is there fingerprint evidence that says this is Jesus and it can only be Jesus that is the Messiah? Yes, my friends, there is such evidence. This is Yeshayahu 53.6, or Isaiah 53.6. Kulanu katzon ta'inu, ishladarko paninu, badonai hifniyah bo, eit avon kulanu. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I had a friend who wrote this out on a piece of paper. He typed it up on his computer without any verse notations, and he took it around to everyone uh, in his office. He worked in a big office for a motor vehicle bureau in one of the big states in our country, and he showed it to everyone in the motor vehicle bureau and uh, in the state capitol. 
he said, just tell me who this is and where it comes from. And every single person that looked at it, Jew or Gentile alike, it didn't matter. Everyone that looked at it read it, and he said, who is this? They said, oh, it's obviously Jesus of Nazareth. That's who it is, and it's from the New Testament. And then my friend would say, but no, it's not from the New Testament. It's from the Hebrew Bible. It was written eight centuries before Jesus came. Can you believe this? And he showed it to them from Isaiah. And people really had a hard time, because if you read this passage without any kind of presuppositions or bias, you will read it, and it will be really clear that this is the life of, of Yeshua. Now, could he have fabricated this, or is this just a big coincidence? In the Old Testament, we really have two kinds of prophecies. We have prophecies that are fulfilled uniquely in Christ and prophecies that are fulfilled typologically in Christ. And I do think we need to distinguish between the two. Uh, those that are fulfilled uniquely in Christ were, were once and for all fulfilled by Jesus. And those are the ones that we can really point to to have apologetic value. That is to demonstrate that, that Jesus was the only person who could have possibly fulfilled this. His birth in Bethlehem is one of those prophecies. His role as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is one of those prophecies. His entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey from Zechariah chapter 9. These are clear evidence that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. The most amazing part of Isaiah's prophecies is in Isaiah 9 when it speaks about the son of David coming to be the king, to sit on the throne of David and have an eternal righteous kingdom. And everyone knows it from Handel's Messiah. Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And the idea of this verse is that the Messiah will actually be born, physically born. And then it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity. In other words, he's the creator, the author of time. Some skeptics have said that Jesus could have engineered the fulfillment of these prophecies. Of course, Jesus could not have determined where he was going to be born. So to be born in Bethlehem, obviously he could not have engineered that. Also, as the suffering servant, it would have been difficult for him to engineer such a specific fulfillment of Isaiah 53. But on the other hand, the fact that Jesus performed certain actions that in fact fulfilled prophecies only demonstrates that he was indeed the Messiah. Um, anyone who enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, an obvious fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. So we certainly have a glimpse in that fulfilled prophecy of the self-consciousness of Jesus, that he truly believed that he was the Messiah. Psalm 22 gives a poetic picture by David, written in the first person, of what the Messiah will be like in his suffering. And one of the things he says is that they will pierce my hands and my feet. Now, David wrote, before crucifixion was known, probably by about 300 years. As Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced through. It gives us the reason for his death. He was pierced through for our iniquities. So there's a purpose. He dies not just because he's a martyr, but because he's a substitution for sin. There's so many different prophecies that are out there, and there's so many different people. It could have been anybody, Peter. Actually, if you believe that the Word of God is infallible, that it is absolute truth, we can level it down pretty quick. Here's what I mean. This is one of those unknown prophecies from Daniel chapter 9. Nobody reads Daniel unless they're going to read about the lion's den. But in Daniel chapter 9, it foretells the coming of the Messiah. And this is one of the most specific prophecies you will ever see. Now, I know there's big names here, but what Daniel 9 tells us is the Messiah is going to appear a certain specific time 
after King Artaxerxes I issues this decree for the Jews to go from Persia and rebuild their walls in Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people lose interest when you, oh, Artaxerxes, building walls, woo, big deal. But there is a specific time that's going to go by. Here's the crazy thing, my friends. We know when Artaxerxes made that prophecy. And we know the time period that's supposed to go by. And you want to know what you find out? You find out that that time period expires and ends when the Messiah is supposed to show up at the exact moment in history when Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. That puts the anticipated arrival of the Messiah exactly when Jesus showed up on the earth. If it's not Jesus and you believe Daniel 9, it had to be somebody else born at exactly the same time, in exactly the same way, and did exactly the same things that Jesus did. You see, my friends, the evidence becomes compelling. But I'll tell you what, we're skeptics. And I look at Isaiah 53, that he's going to be punished in this way. And and, and that he's going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's not going to open his mouth. And I think Jesus could have known that. And Jesus might have not opened his mouth just to make people believe that he was this Messiah. And and this one about riding the, the donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus could have known that and he could have fabricated it just so everybody would believe. And when we, when we read that his, his tongue is going to, he's going to thirst while he's on the cross, Jesus could have known that and just said that he was thirsty simply to fulfill it and make everybody believe he was the Messiah. I want proof. Are there things that Jesus could not have prearranged unless he was the Messiah? <laughs> Hold on to your hats, my friends. How in the world could Jesus have originated and come up with the idea that he is going to be born in Bethlehem? We're talking 700 years before his birth. How could Jesus have manipulated where he was going to be born? How could Jesus have manipulated the fact he was going to be born to a virgin that we read 700 years before the coming of Christ? And then when we get to Luke chapter 1, we're told that the virgin is with child. How could Jesus have arranged that? How could Jesus have known that kings would come and bear gifts from the east when he is just an infant, when he's just a baby? And yet that came 900 years, that prophecy, before kings from the east came and worshipped Christ by presenting him gifts. How could Jesus have arranged that unless he was the Messiah? Or this one, that there's going to be weeping in Israel. You want to know what's crazy about this? At the time the Messiah is born, there's going to be, uh, the, the mothers of the Hebrew children are going to be weeping for their lost babies. You know what happens? King Herod doesn't want Jesus to be the next king over Israel. He wants to stay king. So he issues that decree to kill all babies under the age of two. Here's a guy, King Herod, that wants to do all he can to disprove Jesus' claims to be the Messiah or those that will claim that he is the Messiah. And yet King Herod himself, by engaging in this action, proves the validity of Jesus' testimony. It happens over and over again. Out of Egypt I called my son. How is the Messiah going to come out of Bethlehem and Egypt? Well, Jesus couldn't have controlled the fact that God would warn Joseph in a dream to take your kid and get to Egypt until King Herod dies. And when King Herod dies, they come out of Egypt. How could Jesus have prearranged that unless he was the Messiah? This one right here, this one is crazy. 700 years before the coming of Christ. In the book of Matthew, we read that the prophets say he will be called a Nazarene. And the atheists go nuts. The word Nazarene, Nazareth, wasn't even known in the Old Testament. This is a clear fabrication of what the church did. Hold on a second. You know what Nazareth means in the ancient language? It means the branch. He was called Jesus of the branch. 700 years earlier, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. You see, the atheist, in attempting to disprove the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, once again demonstrates the fact that he is. How about this one? That one who shares the bread of the Messiah is going to betray him. This was 900 years before Judas, one who had just shared in the bread with Christ, went and betrayed him. To, uh, to the chief priests. Or what about this? The price that would be paid to the betrayer. Something Jesus had nothing to do with. And the very people who are going to kill Jesus 
happened to pay the exact amount that proves a prophecy that came 500 years before Jesus ever came along, again, proving he is who he said he was. Or what about this one? What, what would they do with that money? Judas, the guy who got the 30 pieces of silver, takes it back, gives it back to the chief priest. They don't want to keep it, and they use it to buy a potter's field. We read 500 years before, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. Again, an amazing prophecy that's fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And what about this one? False witnesses will rise up against the Messiah. Told 900 years before Mark writes that false witnesses stood up and started testifying against Jesus, that it was a sham of a trial. And how about this in Isaiah, that his back would be struck, that his beard would be plucked, that he would be beaten severely and then we read in Matthew 700 years later that that's exactly what happened to Jesus of Nazareth or what about this one that the very people killing him would divide up his garments and cast lots for his clothes the Messiah and yet 900 years later the very people who have Jesus on the cross and are killing him are fulfilling that very same prophecy dividing up his clothes his garments and casting lots the very people that don't want Jesus to be the Messiah are proving that he is or what about this they pierced my hands and feet this was the one that was just in that video clip crucifixion wasn't even a thing at the time this was written nobody knew what it was and yet 900 years later that's exactly what happens to the Messiah Jesus Christ they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar to drink how could Jesus have arranged that that's exactly what the Roman officers who were killing him who didn't want him to be the Messiah would lift up and thus fulfill the prophecy about Jesus what about this that the Messiah's bones would not be broken you know what happened when the earthquake hit at the crucifixion the Roman soldiers wanted to kill those people on the cross because they were afraid they might escape they went up and they broke their legs because when you break somebody's legs on the cross they can't push themselves up to get a breath anymore and they die of asphyxiation they, they suffocate to death they didn't break Jesus's why because he was already dead he was already gone and his bones weren't broken. How could Jesus have arranged that? And what about this, his burial? He's dead for crying out loud. How could he be arranged that a rich guy would come along and fulfill a prophecy made 700 years that he would have a grave, a burial with the rich? How could Jesus have arranged that? Do you need more, my friends? Because we could keep going. We could start scrolling through the over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament that you're just starting to see scroll across the screen. 300 prophecies that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth fulfills. And you say, okay, yeah, that sounds... That sounds impressive and all, but surely somebody else could have done it. It's just a coincidence. Coincidence? Really? Really? Remember when we talked last week about the odds of all life just arising by chance and how astronomical and insane it was? I want you to pay attention to this. These are guys who know math. Peter W. Stoner, who's the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy in Pasadena. Dr. Robert C. Newman, who's a Ph.D. in astrophysics at Cornell University. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to question these men's authority when it comes to odds making and numbers. I think they've earned, they've earned my uh, respect and authority. They've calculated the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of these over 300 prophecies. Just eight of what you just saw. There's over 300 of them and the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of them, those odds are one in a hundred quadrillion. A hundred quadrillion. Okay, we're not talking, there's my laser pointer here. We're not talking hundreds or thousands or millions or billions or trillions. We're talking quadrillions. Nobody understands what a quadrillion is. Let me put it in perspective for you. If you took pennies and you started stacking pennies on top of each other, you're building a stack. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, nod please so I know. the. Okay, yeah, you're building a stack of pennies and you put just one quadrillion. We're talking a hundred here. One quadrillion. You know how tall your stack would be? Your stack would be tall enough to reach Jupiter. That's one quadrillion pennies stacked on top of each other. Do that a hundred times and pick one of those pennies out on the first try. And that's the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies that Jesus fulfilled over 300. <laughs> you see, this is the equivalent to covering the whole state of Texas with silver dollars. Two feet thick. 
You know the state of Texas. You've driven through the state of Texas where you drive for like 13 hours. Are we still in Texas? Yeah, you're only about halfway through. It's unbelievable, all right? The state of Texas, two feet thick with silver dollars. You mark one of them, blindfold somebody, throw them out into the state of Texas and have them pick that out on the first try. Those are the odds for just eight. It's a mathematical impossibility for just eight of those prophecies to be fulfilled. This is why I say to the atheist, I admire your faith. I admire your faith that something came from nothing in terms of creation. And I admire your faith that you're going to suggest Jesus Christ is not the Messiah because I don't have that kind of faith. I look at this and it is way too compelling of evidence for me to ever begin to suggest it. But ultimately, doesn't it come down to this? For a Christian, doesn't it come down to this? In fact, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. The whole claim of Christianity rests on the fact that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. So let's prove the resurrection. Uh Uh-oh, the New Testament doesn't record that anybody saw it. Nobody witnessed Jesus walking out of the tomb. Some people say, well, that kills our case. I don't believe it hurts it one iota. Doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. It doesn't even begin to harm this. Why? We, we don't see dinosaurs, but we study their fossils. We know they existed. We don't see disease originate, but we know it exists because we see its consequences. We may not see a crime take place, but we can piece together the evidence and put the exact event together. If you want to prove the resurrection, my friends, you have to prove two things. That's it. Two things. Did Jesus die on the cross? You have to prove that Jesus was dead on the cross. And then the second thing, Jesus later appeared to people. If you can, did you see that? I just spit all over the floor. I'm very sorry about that. We'll get clean up in aisle one here in a second. If you can prove those two things, I just completely destroyed the, uh, the moment, all right? If you, can, if you can prove those two things, the guy was dead, and then later he's appearing to people, my friends, you've had yourself a resurrection, all right? That's the only possibility that, that you can have. So first question, did Jesus really die on the cross? Medically, listen to me, there is no medical expert worth their salt that would ever suggest that Jesus did not die on the cross. There is no way Jesus survived what happened to him. There's a condition called hematidrosis. It's where you have such severe anxiety that what happens is a chemical breakdown in your capillaries and your sweat glands, and your, your sweat is tinged with blood. That is a case of extraordinary stress that's going to kill you, all right? There's no question about that. You remember when Jesus is in the garden and he's sweating drops of blood? We always think that's figurative. It's not figurative. It's an actual medical condition that says Jesus was under unbelievable stress and anxiety. You want to know what one of the symptoms of that hematidrosis is? One of the symptoms is extraordinarily sensitive skin incredibly sensitive. Uh, You've had shingles maybe before, and your skin is just, if you touch it, it just hurts to touch. We've all had sensitive skin. This is 30,000 times worse. Remember what happened to Jesus with the flogging? His skin would have been so sensitive. Imagine that. Just imagine that. The Romans were masters. They were brutal, masters of execution. If you wanted to see people who had down the art of murdering somebody, you're looking at the Romans. The Romans controlled such a wide area of land that they could not let crime go unpunished. They didn't want rebellion because they would never be able to control all of their land. So when they punished somebody, they punished them harshly because they didn't want anybody to follow in their footsteps. They were brutal. Whippings included chips of bone. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, they would take that whip and they'd whip it into a piece of wood and when they ripped it back it would tear the wood apart imagine what that would do to somebody's flesh chips of bone in these whips third century historian Eusebius described a Roman flogging I don't know if you can see this I'll read it to you the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles sinews and bowels of the victim were open to exposure this is the way Rome murdered somebody when they wanted to kill somebody they knew how to do it many people died from the floggings before they ever even got to the crucifixion the bodies went into hypovolemic shock big medical term hypo means low 
vol means volume, and emic means blood. Low blood volume is what that means. Four things happen when you're in hypovolemic shock. Number one, you're about ready to die. Four things happen. You tell me if this was going on in Jesus. Your heart races to pump blood that isn't there. It's trying to get blood to the rest of your body. So your blood pressure drops severely. You start fainting. You start falling. Sound at all familiar of what was happening to Jesus? Kidneys stop producing urine. The victim thirsts because they're trying to replenish the volume that they've lost. You see, my friends, each one of these is exactly what's happening to Jesus. Jesus' body had gone into hypovolemic shock. He's not going to survive the crucifixion. It's impossible. And the evidence continually points to the fact that Jesus is in some severe medical trauma that's taking place. And this condition, you know what it would have done? It would have caused the membranes of water to build around his heart. Is there evidence for that? Remember when the spear went through Jesus' side? What came out? The blood and the water. Again, an indication medically that this all is happening, occurring to Jesus' physical body. There is great evidence to suggest that Christ was nailed through the wrists and not through the palms of the hands like you normally see depicted. Uh, let, me, let me describe to you what it would be like to have a nail, a spike driven through your wrists. Uh, have you ever hit your funny bone? You, know, you drill that funny bone and you, you want to just curl up and, and sit in the fetal position for like 20 minutes? All right, you've hit the funny bone. I want you to imagine, take, there's, there's those kind of funny bone nerves right there in your wrist. Take a pair of pliers, grab a hold of that funny bone nerve and twist it. That's what it would have been like to be been nailed through the wrist. And that's exactly what's going on here. The agony of the, the cross was so bad that they invented a new word. This word had never existed before. The word literally means out of the cross. We use this word. You know what the word is? Excruciating. Out of the cross. That's how bad the pain associated with crucifixion was. And it is an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. Eventually the person becomes too weak. They can't push themselves up. They can no longer breathe. It leads to something called respiratory acidosis. Again, a big medical term. What that means is you have an irregular heartbeat and pretty soon you know your final moments. Jesus would have had a startling awareness of when he was about to die. So much so that he would have known exactly when his final moments were. Maybe enough to, or, to issue and, and utter the words... It is accomplished. It is finished. Jesus died on the cross. Now, there's no doctor there to confirm death, but my friends, it's not that difficult when you have a body in this kind of shape. You can take a pulse. You can look at him. It's not that difficult. These soldiers were experts in killing. These soldiers themselves would have been killed if their victim wasn't killed. They would have made sure, and that spear ended any doubt that might have been there whatsoever. But I want to be ridiculous and assume Jesus hadn't died. He just fainted on the cross. He wasn't really dead. He just fainted up there on the cross. And they took him down. He was just passed out. He's in some sort of weird coma where you don't breathe and don't have a pulse and they put him in a tomb all right and in that cold tomb he laid there for three days let me ask you a question even if that happened is jesus's body in any shape to stand up after not eating for three days and being in this terrible crucified state to push the stone back by himself and start wandering around the wilderness saying i have risen i am the messiah i'm telling you friends nobody would have gravitated to that person they would have said my gosh what is that thing that is coming towards me jesus's body would not have been in a state to pretend to be a resurrected messiah so if jesus was dead was the tomb really empty joseph of arimathea is this historical figure that that luke says doesn't cast a vote in the sanhedrin but he was a member of the sanhedrin now the gospel writers would have never chosen him never chosen him in a million years to have been the hero of the story they would have never made this up. But Joseph of Arimathea comes along and gives him a burial. The disciples flee, but Joseph of Arimathea offers him a burial. And that's not all when it comes to evidence. Who were the first people to witness Jesus' resurrection? That's quite telling also. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Luke 24, 1. 
The empty tomb story also has a very embarrassing feature of it that is preserved in the memory of the early church, namely the discovery of the empty tomb by women. Now, in order to appreciate this, you have to understand something of the status of women in Palestinian Jewish society. In that society, which was a patriarchal society, women were frankly second-class citizens. If you were going to invent an account about an empty tomb, then why on earth would you invent witnesses, primary witnesses, whom no one would believe. In fact, they would scoff at that later on. Supposing you were inventing the story of the resurrection of Jesus, many people have said, oh, this was all just dreamed up later on. Well, how would you have done that? The one thing you wouldn't have done would have been to have not only a woman, but a woman who's got, uh, nobody quite knows what, but a fairly shady past as your prime witness. And yet there she is, Mary Magdalene in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and particularly in John. And already by the middle of the second century, the pagans are sneering, oh, this is just based on the testimony of hysterical women, you can't believe that. But the early Christians stuck to their story, they stuck to their guns, they stuck to the women. They said, this is how it was. Now, they just would never have made that up. And that actually has enormous ramifications. If this is how the story was, and they didn't change it um, to airbrush Mary out, then this really must have been what happened on that first Easter day. The chief priests devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Matthew 28, 12, and 13. Matthew reports that the Jewish authorities were claiming that the disciples of Jesus had stolen his corpse. And this is verified by Justin and Tertullian a little bit later on, saying that the Jewish leaders were still saying the same thing in their day. Now here's the question. If the body is still in the tomb, why are you saying that the disciples had stolen it? Well, if you think about that, the claim that the body was stolen confirms that Jesus' enemies acknowledged that the tomb was empty. If you've got a stolen body, you must have an empty tomb. If the tomb was not empty, Jesus' opponents would surely have gone and got the body and shown it as soon as the disciples began proclaiming the resurrection. Again, the very people who didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah are engaging in actions that prove that he was. The tomb of Jesus was well known by Christians and Jews. It would have been very easy for Jesus' opponents to go and produce the body if it was still there. Early Jewish writings even assumed the empty tomb. Their argument is what happened to the body, not the body was still there. So what do we have? We have a dead Jesus and we have an empty tomb. But did Jesus appear to people after his death? Well, nobody questions that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Nobody questions that at all. And he affirms in two places that he met the resurrected Christ. Remember, we saw this passage earlier, that Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12, more than 500 of the brothers, James and all the apostles. Then he appeared to me also. Now, here's one of the things the atheist says. The Gospels don't mention those 500 people. The Gospels don't mention it. Look at what atheist uh, Michael Martin says. One must conclude that this is extremely unlikely that this incident really occurred. It indirectly casts doubt on Paul as a reliable source. This kills me. First of all, this may be just one source, but it's the most reliable source we have. And also, Paul is saying this with those people still around. When he says that 500 people witness Christ, the resurrected body, it's not like those 500 people are dead somewhere. These people are still alive. And if they didn't witness it, they would have said, uh, I don't know who he's talking about, but I didn't see anything. 
Paul is saying this with those witnesses still right there in front of everybody. Also, is it not humorous to anybody else that folks like Martin don't believe that the Gospels are, are legitimate history, and yet then they're going to criticize us for, using, for the Gospels not saying anything about it? I mean, what kind of methodology is that? Well, the Gospel writers didn't pick up on it, so it must not be accurate. But I don't trust the Gospel writers. I mean, it's absolutely absurd to have that kind of methodology. But when you're grasping at straws to try to disprove something that the evidence is abundantly clear, I'll suppose you do anything. Gospels record over and over various people, various witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and you can see all of them listed there. But Acts is perhaps the most compelling. Acts is littered with references to Jesus' appearances. When Peter is giving the great, great church message that first day, Acts 2.32, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to that fact. People in the crowd are sitting there, thousands of them, saying, we didn't witness anything. No, Peter would have never said that unless they too would have said, yeah, we saw the body. There's got to be something to it. Acts 3.15, he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are all witnesses to this. Is it any wonder that those people at the first gospel message set up and said, what do we do? What must we do to be saved? They knew because they had seen the resurrected Messiah. Peter says the same thing to Cornelius, saying that we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then in Acts 13, that he's appeared to a lot of people who aren't even among our number. Jesus has been seen and the witnesses are out there and they're verifying what I'm claiming is what Paul's saying. Scholar John Drain says the earliest evidence we have for the resurrection certainly goes back to the time immediately after the resurrection event is alleged to have taken place. This is the evidence contained in the early sermons and the Acts of the Apostles. There can be no doubt that in the first few chapters of Acts its author has preserved material from the very earliest sources and those very early sources had people who knew whether or not it was true and that is such a huge factor. What does this tell us? The resurrection was the central proclamation of the early church. It's why the church took off, because those people believed in the resurrection. The earliest Christians didn't just think of Jesus as a good teacher. They would have never started this church movement if he was a good teacher who died. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen the resurrected Christ. And that convinced them that there was something to this. That's what changed their lives. That's what started the church. It, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true if they were going to allow it to. British uh, theologian Michael Green says this, the appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. In other words, all of these scholars, all of these historians, they, they believe these facts that exist because there's all of this history that backs it up. These claims of Jesus' resurrection are better, they're better uh, cited and they're better proved than any of that other history that exists. These people knew they had seen the resurrected Christ. Let's finish it with this. Corroborating evidence puts the icing on the cake. This, this is what uh, the, the most ardent skeptic has to sit there and say, whoa. This is unbelievable stuff. The disciples died for their beliefs. I don't know if you recognize this. When Jesus died, his followers were crushed. The Jesus movement was officially over. You see, they believed he couldn't have been sent from God because God wouldn't let his Messiah suffer death. It's impossible. God's not going to allow the Messiah to be cursed in the form of, of crucifixion. And so what happened to the disciples? They dispersed. They ran away. The Jesus movement is officially over. And then, within just a short period of time, what happens? They abandon their jobs. They regather. They commit themselves to spending their lives sharing the truth of this message. Christ the Messiah died, he was raised, and he's been seen alive. That became their mission. They spent their lives proclaiming this. And what human benefit did they get out of it? Well, they went without food. They slept exposed to the elements. They were ridiculed. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. And most of them were executed in pretty brutal ways. If you've ever read the way the disciples were executed, it isn't pleasant at all. Now, did they do this just for good intentions? No, they believed what they were preaching. You see, some atheists will say, well, Muslims die for their beliefs. 
Muslims die for their beliefs. And if Muslims die for their beliefs, Peter, they die for their belief in, in Allah. That must mean if disciples die for Jesus and that proves Jesus, Muslims die for their beliefs, that proves Allah, right? No, 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 no. A little bit of a difference here. Muslims die for their belief that Muhammad told them Allah appeared to me. Nobody saw Allah appear to Muhammad. Muhammad just told them that. These people, these disciples, knew whether they were wrong or not. You see, a person can buy into Islam and not know whether it's really true or not. These disciples knew whether they had seen the resurrected Christ or had not seen the resurrected Christ. They're in a unique position. They knew whether what they were proclaiming was true or not. Lee Strobel says people will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true, but people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. And the disciples were in the position they would have known. And what about this? One of the most compelling pieces of evidence, those who were diametrically opposed to Jesus' message when he was alive, all of a sudden become ardent followers? Stop and think about this. James, Jesus' brother who was embarrassed of him, when Jesus was walking around proclaiming to be the Messiah, James did not believe him. Jesus dies, and then all of a sudden James becomes an ardent believer and dies a miserable death? What happened? Oh, he started believing the disciples. He didn't believe the disciples when Jesus was alive. What would make him believe it after he'd been killed? The only possible answer is James saw the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. It's the only answer. Saul, this guy is such a strong Jewish Pharisee, he was killing Christians because they were changing the Jewish order. And yet this guy doesn't just ease off Christians, he joins the club becomes the biggest Christian of all time. What happened? He saw the resurrected Messiah. The only logical explanations are they saw the resurrected Jesus. Changes in Jewish life. All of these institutions that the Jews held to so firmly, they believed if they abandoned them, it meant their, their, their condemnation, that they would go to hell. So along comes this low-class Jew named Jesus. He causes trouble. He gets crucified. 30,000 other Jewish men crucified in his time period. And then five weeks after his death, 10,000 Jews are following him. 10,000 Jews have given up animal sacrifice and the Mosaic Code and not worshiping on the, or not doing anything on the Sabbath. This strict belief in monotheism, they're believing in a trinity and this awaiting a political Messiah, they're no longer... 10,000 people have just abandoned this that they believed if they did they were going to go to hell and you're going to tell me that that was just a coincidence that they didn't see the resurrected Messiah to cause them to do that. Communion and baptism. You see, these people didn't get together just to celebrate Jesus' teachings. They got together to commemorate his grotesque slaughter. Imagine a bunch of JFK fans getting together in Texas all the time to remember the event that took place in Dealey Plaza. That would be really macabre. That would be really freakish. But these Christians did that. They got together, and they would only do that if they realized this was step one. We have seen the resurrected Jesus. This isn't the end of the story, and therefore we're remembering his sacrificial death. The act of baptism to the early church was an exact replication of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Why did it catch on? Because people believed. And then finally this, the rise of the early church. Christianity started shortly after Jesus' resurrection, and with 20 years it had reached Caesar's palace. I want you to answer me a question. It eventually wipes out all the competing ideologies and knocks out Rome. Uh, now, if you're going to guess, the mighty Roman Empire, that it stretches beyond the imagination at that time period, and a little podunk bunch of followers of this messianic uh, Jew, which one's going to outlast which one? I mean, if you had to place bets to compare the mighty Roman Empire to this ragtag group of carpenters and fishermen, you'd bet on the Roman Empire. I would, but J.P. Moreland points out, Christianity was so successful, today we name our children Peter and Paul and our dogs Caesar and Nero. Christianity outlasted even the mighty Roman Empire. Why? Because these people understood the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is. None of these corroborating facts can be questioned. None of them. 
None of them can be questioned. Those things happened. Communion and baptism caught on. The early church exploded. Uh, the, the conversion of skeptics happened. The disciples died for their beliefs. There is no question historically that that happened. Okay? We all understand that. Those things we know took place. If you want to say they all happened for some other reason, okay. That, that's fine. That's your ability to say that. But you can't question that they took place. And to me, simply put the best explanation, the only explanation as to why these things happened is because they knew this guy, Jesus Christ, died and we saw his resurrected body. It is simply the greatest story ever told. A million angels gathered around the magnificent throne of God, bowing, praising, worshiping the King, the Creator. And then a silence worked its way through the entire company of the heavenly host, as if each and every angel was holding its breath. And at that moment, far below in the stained creation, marred and blotted with the weight of sin for 6,000 years, the souls of the lost, the broken, the downtrodden, the hopeless, the confused, crying out for deliverance, were so consumed and mired in their own failures that they hadn't noticed the invisible hand of God moving through time and space and positioning people and events like chess pieces for this, the fullness of time. A census, a manger, two travel-worn strangers, the stage was finally set. In the stillness of heaven, the God of eternity turned right in His throne to His one beloved Son, through whom all things had been made and whispered, the time has come. I love you, my son. And with that, Jesus took off his crown and with more humility and submission and love than this world has ever known, took on our injured flesh and became a man. And there, in that Bethlehem stable, with only a handful of witnesses there to see it, the most unlikely event in all of human history was unfolding. The Creator had become the creation. So many earthly babies had grown to become kings, but this was different. Never before and never again would a king become a baby. As he grew, he walked the roads of Galilee and taught in the synagogues, telling all who would hear about the love of the Father. And when those who feared him and his influence challenged his authority, he responded only by opening blinded eyes turning water into wine, walking on water, casting out evil spirits, calming a raging sea with just his spoken word, and even raising the dead to life. And if that wasn't enough, the greatest testimonies to his ministry were the lonely, the displaced, the broken, the abused, the lost, and the hurting, who found forgiveness and hope and new life Twilight in Jerusalem. The silence in the dark room was shattered with the sound of 30 pieces of silver being poured into the hands of one of Jesus' closest friends. Fully aware of what was taking place across the city in a garden, Jesus prayed intently. 
Father, if this cup may pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Knowing the hour was nearly upon him, tempted no doubt to flee, to flee from the fate that awaited him, something prevented it, something weighing on his mind that entire night. That something was you. Soon the soldiers were upon him. He was chained, whipped, and abused. He had done no wrong, but it didn't matter. He spoke not a word as he was drugged and beaten and pummeled, fists flying towards him from nearly every direction, dazing no doubt, but not enough to prevent him from noticing that one of the fists that he felt upon his flesh was yours. Standing before the crowd, the same ones he had healed, loved, who just seven days before had been throwing palm branches, shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Now they had a new cry. Crucify him. And as those words of arrogant condemnation echoed in his mind, he turned to the royal governor, who stood speechless at the crowd's hostility. And as the shouts grew louder and higher, Jesus turned back slowly just to hear the voice of one he recognized, a voice of one he knew, calling for his death. That voice, that voice belonged to you. After Pilate had him scourged within an inch of his life, he was mocked, spit upon, ridiculed, had a crown of razor-sharp thorns buried deep into his brow. Barely able to stand, they made him carry his own cross, its beams digging deep into his back as they led him to his place of execution, the place called Golgotha. He was put on his back, arms stretched to either side, and as one soldier steadied the metal spike that would pierce his hand and wrist, another lifted high the hammer. In anticipation of the blow, Jesus took one last look towards that Roman soldier and noticed as his arm came down, leaving his face exposed, just how much that face resembled yours. His cross was dropped into the hole and he was lifted high above that scornful crowd below. Even those being crucified alongside him mocked him, and yet his response to them has startled skeptics even to this very day. With more love than humanity has ever known, he uttered, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he hung there suffering, struggling just to get a breath, writhing in pain and agony unlike anything we could ever imagine. And far beyond the physical trauma, he hung bearing the weight of the sins of all mankind. And yet in that moment, all he could think about was how living with you for eternity was worth it all. Finally, his broken body could no longer take the anguish the temple curtain separating us from God was ripped top to bottom, and as Jesus breathed his last, the greatest note of triumph ever sounded in the ears of a startled universe was heard. It is finished.
the story isn't over. His body was taken down and placed in a borrowed tomb. Those days that followed leave us numb. Shock and grief after the brutal death he had suffered. Feeling the pain and the mourning of our own loss. But then came the morning. The morning of the third day. Imagine that moment outside the tomb of Jesus. The earth begins to tremble. The tremble becomes a violent shaking. A blinding light flashes through the sky and an angel dressed in pure white appears and with what seems to be no effort begins pushing back the boulder, that terrible stone. Imagine watching breathlessly as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, comes walking forward in awesome power and majesty, defeating Satan, sin, and death for all eternity. And at that moment, the rocks and the trees and the souls of man, unable to contain themselves any longer, cry out with all creation, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and at the name of Jesus Christ, let every knee bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord, and He is Lord of all. And amidst the triumph, amidst the glory, amidst the brilliance, Jesus Christ turns and He faces you. He extends His nail-scarred hand and begs you to come to Him. How can you resist? Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and He washed it white as snow. With love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.